0: They had the worst of stars, didn't they? The Irish uh, Free State. Having said that, they were an incredibly cohesive and strong democracy. If you think about what had happened to Ireland throughout that revolutionary period, from the Easter Rising, the War of Independence and, you know, then the Civil War. During that interwar period, many new democracies collapsed, they didn't survive, Ireland did.
1: Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Now today I'm discussing the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, which was an important event during the Irish Revolution. Now this revolution was a complicated one, but it is hugely important when understanding the relationship between Britain, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland today. The treaty was an important step in establishing Northern Ireland and it also, to quote Michael Collins, the great Irish revolutionary, gave Ireland the freedom to achieve freedom. Again, to quote him after signing the treaty, I have signed my death warrant. Sure enough, within a year, Collins was dead, one of approximately 2,000 killed during the Civil War. My guest is the journalist and author Gretchen Freeman, who's based in Dublin, and she's written an account of the treaty entitled The Treaty. For many of Irish heritage around the world, and I'm one of them, this should be of interest. Also, in Britain, very few people understand the Irish Revolution, and it isn't taught in schools in England. So I hope you enjoy our chat. It's not an easy subject to rattle off, but Gretchen's book is only 250 pages, and so a great entry point. I've also put some additional resources in the show notes, including a great lecture series from Professor Michael Laffin of University College Dublin. I've also put a link in on a piece by Rona McGreevy on the Aspects of History website, He's written a new book on an assassination that helped spark the Civil War. If you like the pod, please do subscribe. You can get hold of me on the Twitter at OllyWCQ and you can get Gretchen at G underscore Freeman. I hope you enjoy. Gretchen Freeman, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast.
0: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: <laughs> a pleasure. And and we are talking about your book, which came out the end of last year. So mm-hmm. it's still a new book. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. is The Treaty. And... Uh, the sub the subheading there for our listeners so that they know what I'm talking about here, it's the gripping story of the negotiations that brought about Irish independence and led to the Civil War. So it's the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921. Now, um, there, we've just been talking about this, actually, before we uh, started recording, uh, dear listeners, because uh, the story of the Irish Revolution is not one you can really cover in a quick five minute discussion or even probably in an hour's podcast so um, we're going to talk more about the Anglo-Irish treaty itself and particularly the characters involved because there are some really big heavyweight figures on both sides both the Irish side and the British side Um, but I think it's probably going to help Gretchen to just briefly and again we've been laughing about um, how briefly it can be but a little bit of background for our listeners because the majority of um, my listeners are in Britain but we've got many in America and I'm sure they'll have a view and we do have some in Ireland as well so um, no pressure. (laughs) God. (laughs) (laughs) We were just talking about um you know there are various irish home rule bills uh, that took place during the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century but really the problems probably always well they've often been there've been problems throughout anglo-irish history but the act of union is probably a good place to start off isn't it
0: yeah so that was essentially a uh, defensive uh, agreement or a defensive move by the british government and What it meant was that in January 1801, uh, when it uh, took effect, was that Ireland effectively vanished as an independent country. So it became part of the United Kingdom. It became a region, rather, of uh, the United Kingdom. And the Dublin Parliament effectively had voted themselves, voluntarily voted themselves, well, bribes were involved, etc. But uh, they voluntarily voted themselves out of existence. And really that for the next century, there was just this constant desire to roll back, abolish, to get rid of the Act of Union and this constitutional issue at the heart of British politics really flared up, I guess, um, with the Home Rule movement, um, which Gladstone introduced to Parliament in um, 1886. And really from that time until the treaty, uh, which was 1921, and then implemented on the 6th of December 1922, this constitutional issue, this deeply problematic constitutional issue was always front and centre of um, British parliamentary politics. And uh, I think what the revolution showed, particularly before uh, the First World War, was that, Britain's parliamentary system wasn't really well equipped to, to deal with such um, a, a tricky constitutional issue uh, because Irish nationalists wanted to roll back the active union. They wanted to have a degree of self-governance and the Protestant population in Ireland didn't want that at all and um, particularly Storwart and um, the, the, the nub of the, the unionist, um, loyalist Resistance to this home rule movement was in Ulster. Yeah, it had it, it just really poisoned British politics. Um, well, certainly um, from the time that um, Gladstone submitted it, ripped apart the Liberal Party. They had the second home rule reading in 1893.
1: And just, just to interrupt you qu- briefly. Yes. Um, Irish home rule. What did that actually mean?
0: Well, it effectively meant a limited amount of self government. You'd, you'd be financially dependent to a degree still on London, on the Westminster system, but um, you would have a degree of, you know, it was sort of a devolution, and a, a variation of devolution as to what you, know, you, you have now almost, a, a far more, uh, a, a weaker version of that um, initially. What all of this unleashed was a ferocious um, identity, a, a clash of identities I don't know how much you wanted to, to dwell on this but really Gladstone approached Homer with a sort of messianic energy I mean it, for him it was it was a moral imperative to to give the Irish some degree of, of self-government um, and you've got to remember that the uh, way the island was ruled was that there was an entrenched Protestant ascendancy in Ireland and so the Catholic majority of over 80% were always at a um, at a disadvantage and Gladstone wanted to um, address this I mean if you look from 1801 to 1829 I think we were saying earlier that really um, you know before Catholic emancipation the iniquities within uh, the system were appalling I mean sort of Ireland was ruled by a um, a succession of uh, coercive acts. So over the, the century, that there uh, this movement towards obviously that the nationalist movement in Ireland gained traction, but also there was a a, um, a degree of support among the British at large that wanted that thought that there was a justification for home rule. It completely divided the Liberal Party, and then you have this situation where. Um, Ultimately, conservatives could always crush the home rule movement because they had the majority in the House of Lords. But uh, this all fell apart, of course, when uh, Lloyd George and uh, Asquith's government—Lloyd um, George, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time—when they managed in 1909 to to water down the, the the way that the House of Lords could just you know come in and, and crush any sort of legislation from the House of Commons. So they weakened the House of Lords and. Then once that became apparent that the, uh, to the loyalist population in uh, Ireland, that they might actually have to accept through the parliamentary system constitutionally, though they, they would have to accept home rule, rule from Dublin, which for them was just totally was was this idea that they were going to be run by the people that were in their view subservient to Rome, you know, so um, they were just viscerally opposed to this. And, and this is when you get, the, um, and, and bear in mind that also, we have Andrew Bernard Law coming in as um, the leader of the Conservative Party in 1911. Um, and it, it, around this time, as it becomes obvious that, you know, that the House of Lords uh, dominance over um, the parliamentary system was going to be weak and that they were not going to be able to to thwart home rule as they had previously, then what happens is that you get this increasing militant vein within the unionist um, movement and let's just also put on the record that the unionist movement the description of unionist you know really came about because of home rule so you didn't have to say that you were a unionist prior to uh, Gladstone introducing home rule because basically both parties were uh, Unionists, so there was no need to to, to use that um, description. By 1911, we're really getting this upswing in um, paramilitarism we have the formation or at least the the, um, Craig-Avon mass rally in September um, 1911 of uh, the Ulster um, Volunteers formally um, formed in 1913, but then we have these these marches um, and and it, as as in opposition to that again, of course, we have the Irish Volunteers bombing, But just to stick with the UVF for the, the minute, this sort of get builds into a crescendo to the point where we have in March 1914 we have the Carr incident, where um, officers from the south, Protestant officers from the south, because you know they were invariably Protestant, were told, look, you know, you need to go up to uh, the north and make sure that they don't take any of these arms. You know that that you need to to um, essentially. Uh, established order and we're trying to um, push our Irish policy through here
1: so um, uh, and it should pro- it's probably helpful to just mention I, I think mm-hmm. with the British army the relationship with Ireland it's not like t- it, I mean it's there's still a very strong relationship today with many Irish regiments in the British army but yeah back then it was even more of a close the British Army was was um, not only manned but also officered by many Irish um, Irish soldiers, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, no, that's true. And um, I mean, in many ways, I mean, this is always sort of raised as oh, a um, an example of potentially hypocrisy from you know because a lot of those. Uh, recruits ultimately um crossed over to the volunteers that became the ira there's an argument that they opened themselves up to charges of hypocrisy that were previously part of the british Army, then they were fighting fighting for the um the ira but i mean you know that this that was part of the empire system you had to uh, be to not be part of the army would just be uh really shooting yourself in the foot sorry for the for the uh perhaps a uh, metaphor there but <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a way of generating income you know i mean and jobs were were uh fairly hard to come by and so obviously the british army offered one way of um having a, a, an income of making a living so yes but in general the officer class were dominated by the protestants um mm. and the anglo-irish ascendancy. Um, so, so what happened in the Curra? I mean, as you, I'm sure all your listeners know. I mean, effectively, uh, the the officers, uh, there was an incipient officer rebellion, and so they weren't going to go up. And uh, this Curra m- mutiny was followed um, in April, April 24th to 25th, by the LAN gun running. Um, and uh, that, by this stage, we have about 90,000 in the uh, enrolled in the, the UVF. After the uh, land government, they had about forty thousand rifles, so you know not not enough actually for every UVF member to have a rifle, but really that was um, at this point you know you could see that actually the British parliamentary uh, system was breaking down in Ireland, you know because uh, now there's effectively an army an alternative uh, system developing it and um really the whole um, situation didn't come to a head because it was superseded by the outbreak of the First World War. Um, but
1: yeah, it didn't, and the f- outbreak of the First World War was a huge relief at the absolutely. time by, yeah. by Herbert Asquith, who actually says, oh, we'll now save from the, uh, the problems of Ulster.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he wrote to um, Venetia Stanley and said, "Thank God," you know, kind of you know, paraphrasing there, but yeah, but in that was the uh, that was the sentiment.
1: With the World War One kind of saving the government from really close to civil war um, mm. prior to the First World War, we then have attention turns to to uh, events on the continent and you know the horrors of the First World War on the trenches at which by the way i think quite a quite a significant number of um and this is perhaps speaks to the loyalty of, of certain counties in ulster to the United, to the union with mm-hmm. the loss of so many soldiers during the first world war but the 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 easter rising is probably the next big event to talk about would you say yeah. unless i've missed something
0: and um, no well, uh, um the Easter Rising was absolutely the, the next big event and it took um, the uh, British establishment absolutely by surprise uh, that it happened. And in fact, um, the, the majority of the Irish volunteers were against it. Um, they, A lot of them were thinking, well, we just need an absolute military uh, triumph here. But uh, what happened was the core of uh, the Irish volunteers, really the sort of IRB um, people uh, led by um, Pierce, they were the ones that, um, decided, well, we're just going to go for an insurrection anyway. And um, the the East Rising has... This is a
1: very small minority of people, isn't it, really, ultimately?
0: Yeah, it was a small minority of people, but it soon became a a, a far wider mass uprising. Um, And the problem was that the way that the British reacted to that, um, they cracked down um they were very uh that they sort of treated in, in as they have with all irish rebellions by the way you know the same could be said of the 1798 rebellion uh you know when ev- anyone's inspector was just sort of shot uh, and um i this has always been a kind of um a trend in the way that the british deal with the irish that uh it, it's it's sort of an in many ways similar to the way that they dealt with um, other colonies, you know Ireland wasn't a colony, it was a quasi-colony though, um, but they were very vicious when it came to suppressing any sign of insurrection or rebellion. Um, And actually the majority of the deaths that were caused uh, um, during the Easter Rising, they were caused by the British military. But that's not to say that the uh, Irish uh, volunteers didn't also uh, kill civilians, they did, Um, but the Easter Rising has sort of gone down in um, the popular memory in Ireland as really a clean fight as the Irish civilians taking on the might of the British Empire.
1: And so with the Easter Rising, I guess, really capturing the soul of of the Irish people you have the general election in 1918 where Sinn Fein's very successful
0: after the treaty and the civil war there was a sense that the revolution had never been it was not completed and so they were going to take up that fight and there was this idea that this was the pure fight this was really what they had been um you know what the whole movement had been about and there had been um, some uh, appalling, invidious compromise and that, you know, really your sacred duty to your nation was to the patriotic duty, the real genuine patriotic duty was to actually um, continue the fight that Sinn Féin had um, uh, started, um, volunteers that Sinn Féin had started and that this was the um, real genuine uh, sign of patriotism that you wanted a completely independent Ireland, uh, an Irish Republic, and, you know, the Sinn Féin movement was anti-imperialistic, so um, I guess that that's how it relates, but obviously, you know, uh, the Sinn Féin, that whole, that whole Sinn Féin party fell apart, because of once the treaty, we'll get into that, but once the treaty was signed, pretty much every Republican organisation, institution fell apart, they all split down the middle, so... Um, okay. And Sinn Féin, just to say as well, was a a loose umbrella organisation and that was part of its strength and also part of its weakness, its fragility. And interestingly, you could say the same about the Irish Home Rule movement, because, again, it was a broad based movement and um, it it was a popular movement. but it was a very diverse movement. So it sort of, you know, in, uh, swept in all you know, like centuries of various strains of of nationalism and people that sh- uh, various groups um, sort of uh, campaigning for uh, a degree of independence. So, so in that way, they're a little bit similar. They're both diverse movements, and that diversity is also their weakness. Um, but Sinn Féin in 1917 merged the, the you know, so within, in nineteen seventy to the merge of, the merge rather, of the Irish volunteers with the Sinn Féin um, organisation which obviously had been started by Arthur Griffiths, but it was actually Eamon de Valera who um, takes over in, in 1917 because he's one of the um, few leaders of the uh, uh, Easter Rising that is still around and he's seen it as sort of a you know, kind of bona fide, um, genuine article more so than Griffith who, but really by this stage, I mean, um, you know, many held him in contempt, actually, even by 1917, he was sort of seen as too much of a moderate, a bit of a sellout, uh, which is, uh, he likes
1: uh, a dual monarchy, doesn't he? He's yeah. got a dual monarchy idea.
0: Yeah. He's, he's absolutely keen on taking, um, you know, accepting the crown under circumstances. Having said that though, he's quite, um, he, he's quite, a, an anglophobe in many ways. So, um, it's misleading to think of him as being, you know, uh, not wanting a um he that this idea that he's not a separatist. He just didn't and this was what this was the problem with the Sinn Fein movement. I mean, you can't you can't argue the point over whether you were a separatist or not. Everyone agreed with the genuine the, the basic goal that they wanted to be a separatist, you know, a state they didn't want to be attached in any way to the, to um to Britain, to Great Britain. But um, there were disagreements and divergences over how much they were willing to sacrifice and how quickly that, you know, that, that goal should be attained and at what cost. Um, so and I'm sure we'll come yeah. on, but the, the problem with the 1918 Parliament or Doyle is that really they never got a chance to actually um, debate this in, in any, in any uh, way. I mean, if you think about it, uh, that the Doyle um, met uh, very few times in um, um, only four of those meetings and none later than May 1990 were held in public so so essentially um, this is a, a parliament on the run making policy on the hoof <laughs> so it, it's, it's a little bit of an echo chamber um, and, and it should be added that uh, the same can be said for the Belfast parliament which was of course up and running by the time uh, we come to the the treaty negotiations, so by the time of the truce we've actually got two uh, parliaments, you know we've got the counter-state parliament, the Doyle and then we've got the Belfast parliament that um, the king had opened on June 22nd 1921.
1: Okay so we moved to the negotiations, I, I mean I I don't want to spend too much time on the war of independence uh the war of independence except to say it was brutal and <laughs> it
0: was brutal it
1: was awful yeah yeah o- o- on both sides um black and tan's famously um by the british and there were many atrocities committed by the other side as well weren't there are you going to um no, no, would no, you I, say that's fair i, I was going
0: to say there are some um historians that would say well you know th- there's this um strange uh, disconnect between the way people view the Easter Rising, which also um, re- involved the, the slaughter of or the killing of innocent civilians and uh, and the War of Independence and then the Civil War. So, be, you know, um, you could make the argument, well, weren't they all of a piece? You know, uh, why should we say the Easter Rising is this uh, clean fight and uh, the War of Independence, you know, well that's a little bit, uh, that's a little bit uh, difficult because obviously um, you've got the Irish killing uh, suspected spies, um, the assassinations that w- that went on, um, you know, the atrocities that were perpetrated on both sides, I mean horrific atrocities on both sides. Um, there's the sack of Balbrigan, the burning of cork by the British, um, you know, if, if you read through it, it's, it's really, it's quite distressing that, um and I, I, you know, you were really tainted, if you were black and tan, you were tainted for the rest of your life, Um you know, no one in Britain uh, really, after the, the War of Independence, there was just a general feeling of disgust at the, at the way that the British had handled that, and I think a, a lot of the blame, has to be laid at um, David Lloyd George's door. He shouldn't have allowed it to go on in the way that he did. He turned a blind eye to this, to what he wanted to to be a police war, but you know, it was a savage guerrilla war and um, it it still produces conflicted emotions and stirs up strong emotions today. I mean, um, you know, the Irish Irish don't forget it.
1: Yes, I I, yeah, I know what you mean. And I think that's something that the British today are probably not uh, as aware as, as we should be, actually. So, yeah, so we've now, w- where the War of Independence has ended and because there is a truce and both sides now need to negotiate a treaty. So this is where we pick up your book uh, or where your book picks up, rather, uh, although everyone should pick up your book. And... <laughs> So um, it's probably good to just um, talk about who was on each side. So we are the British government and the Sh- and Sinn Féin, don't we?
0: Yeah. In in terms of the the delegation on either side. Well, um, you can just
1: uh, and also we should talk about. Sorry, I'm diving in again. No, you you can tell me to no. shut up. Um, no. uh, the, and you've alluded to this: is the weakness of the Irish side was that really the plenipotentiaries, the delegates. Mm were not in agreement themselves as to what, they were, what their ultimate goal was, although, although they were probably, there were realists and there were those who wanted really to go all the way in a complete cut from Britain and Ireland. And that is also the true, true of their administration back in Dublin. Is, is that, is that um, fair to well,
0: say? There, there, well, there were hardliners uh, like Karl Brewer and Austin Stack who uh just you know couldn't stomach uh, the idea of before we go on to that this is why it always gets a uh, slightly complicated but um in, actually Eamon and Valera had uh convinced and we're not it, it was never clear to what extent uh Karl Brewer and Austin stack were going to accept this but he', but he seemed to have um, convinced them that this idea that of a compromise external association um could uh, perhaps bridge this, I, um, bridge their desire for an Irish Republic and um, the British concern for Dominion status and keeping the Irish in, in the Empire and retaining that unity of the Empire, because that was really their paramount concern. But just before we get into that, can I um, just sort of say that after the of, tr- of which came into force at the start of July, Then um, Eamon de Valera uh, travelled to London with a delegation, travelled to London to meet Lloyd George and he met him alone in Downing Street, in the Cabinet Room in Downing Street. They didn't bicker or argue but they didn't really get along um, and uh, I guess de Valera was a very different figure to Lloyd George, um, who was very boisterous, convivial, agile and de Valera was a sort of an ascetic spare figure, obsessed by formulae and all that type of thing. So, you know, there wasn't really a meeting of minds, uh, and I guess perhaps uh, after the ferocity of the War of Independence and and the the danger of charges of apostasy on either side, I mean, both leaders were, were um, concerned about that. There was never really going to be a, sort of a, a warm welcome. What, what we do need to understand is that um, during those meetings in Downing Street, Lloyd George made it clear that if they didn't accept the crown or the empire, then the alternative was war. So de Valera really had no um, illusion, really, uh, as to uh, where the red lines were in relation to the British and what they were prepared to do if uh, the negotiations collapsed. So um, I think we, we need to to hold uh, to have that thought there clearly, because really coercion and the threat of war were absolutely essential in, in, um, in the negotiations and in getting an agreement effectively. Um, and it was really, or who could use the menace of war the most effectively? And I think that it was always the British that could do that even though the British were terrified about the fact that the IRA were just actually using the truce and the treaty negotiations as an excuse to actually muster their forces again and renew the attack on an even greater scale. But ultimately, the British, they they are the superpower and um, much as guerrilla warfare had uh, really uh, put them on the back foot, they had never thrown all of their resources At the Irish, and the Irish knew that. It was always really Lloyd George who had the greatest stick, if you like. De Valera has, you know, he has these meetings with Lloyd George, and really um, the only record that we have of those, um, and of course they're not reliable really, but they're not gospel, but they actually um, give us a fair idea of what passed between them, and um, they're the the Francis Stevenson's diaries. Yes,
1: who's Lloyd George's secretary has been having an affair with uh, his wife is in Wales, and he's he's a terrible man, Lloyd George. By the way, I think.
0: (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I I sort of I love him, love him and hate him. I sort of uh, he's he. I mean, he's he's a divisive figure. Um, but uh, I don't think you know. There's a temptation to sort of write him off completely, but I think he was an, an extremely creative and forceful character. Um you know morally, yes, you could <laughs> you know, we could um say is that was there a well, I think John Minard Keane said that he you know, effectively was a moral vacuum. Um but <laughs> <laughs> um
1: but the truth and, is And you mentioned you wrote in <laughs> uh and also in your book um you wrote a, a good piece for us on Craig's involvement in the treaty negotiations and I'm sorry to keep on interrupting again but he what? you you mentioned that Craig when he learned that de Valera had met with Lloyd George alone
0: mm. Craig's
1: you're mad you should you needed a witness there
0: yeah well um so that was recorded um I took that line um from Max Aikens so uh you know you have to I think I did sort of say you have to caveat with it, it is Max Aikens
1: um i so
0: Lord Bebrook <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great line, isn't it? I, yeah. I, I really don't think we would have had a treaty in many ways. I mean, it's a sort of ridiculous uh, what if question, but, you know, if you didn't have somebody of, uh, I guess, Lord George's deviousness in, uh, to a degree, um, right. would, you, would you have had a treaty? Probably. I mean, you know, I, I don't think you would have, but, um, you know, I I I did once say that to him in a story and he goes, yeah, but so what, you know? So, so I agree, you know, like to an extent he was, you know, he he was the prime minister of the time, and um, I I think that the British had a great, in many ways, they had a great asset in Lloyd George because he managed to, by I think, quite devious means, um, to uh, to achieve a, a settlement and it was an extraordinary achievement because it looked absolutely, I mean how are you going to reconcile these two opposing factions, or three opposing factions, how were you going to, to square this circle that looked almost impossible from the outset.
1: And, and Lloyd George's uh, counterpart Arthur Griffith. Yeah oh, the delegations. Yeah. yeah well, well we, I, we don't have to go through each and every okay. one but the, the sort of the yeah. main players really. Yeah, well, uh, wait Roy George I guess and and Arthur Griffith and Colin Michael Collins of course.
0: Yeah, um well Arthur Griffith um had been a, a sort of fiery journalist uh, you know from the um, the turn of the century and um he so he was um he he wasn't a great negotiator though he didn't have any experience as a negotiator. Um so you have to remember that, whereas of course i don't think there was really anyone almost to to rival Lloyd George by the time you got to nineteen twenty one he'd been through paris, so many um you know difficult negotiations at that point you know he was really at his peak um but yeah Arthur Griffiths was um he certainly didn't i mean it's clear that he was a moderate and um that he he didn't want to he wanted to avoid war if if they couldn't. He was willing to accept the crown if that was what it was going to take. Um, but he, uh, he, he was recognised within Sinn Féin as being a moderate by that stage. So uh, his word alone was not going to carry much weight. And that's really the, the difficulty that happened at that penultimate meeting. Um, you know when Lloyd George dramatically threatens, you know there'll be immediate and terrible war within three days, um, and all the rest. So he he needed effectively uh, all of the, the um, Irish delegates to sign. So so Arthur Griffith, yes, he's moderate, and they sort of had to sound, they had to um, try and establish the, which of the delegates were going to be amenable to a negotiation or to an agreement, and which weren't. Um, So there was some confusion as to whether uh, Collins was really a hardliner or not. It turns out actually that he was always sort of inclined towards um, moderation, at least towards some sort of um, compromise. And, um, you know, again, I I think Collins was quite um, pragmatic about it in a way, because the idea of having to um, renew the war with, limited resources. And if the, the British were to throw everything that they had, it, they had at the Irish, that was going to be very difficult for Collins, especially after the truce when sort of the whole um, everyone had been sort of flushed out and it, he was never going to be able to, to return to that position of being, you know, um, sort of under the radar um, and able to, he, he was always protected, he got the reputation in the end of a sort of a scarlet pimpernel who could disappear without trace. Um, and always elude that the crown forces. I mean, Collins was always the more charismatic figure um, and there was absolutely no way that, again, you could not have Collins as part of that delegation. So of course, there's a ferocious argument in in, um, Dublin. And of course, down the decades, who should have been part of that delegation? De Valera, right? So why wasn't he part of the delegation? But there's a lot of um, sort of myth attached to uh, De Valera having uh, thrown uh, Michael Collins to the wolves, you know, made him sort of put him in this precarious position um, and his whole his whole strategy was there to undermine him. But you have to remember as well that um, Michael Collins was Minister of Finance um, and he was also the um, President of the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, that was sort of at the core of the IRA and so there wasn't going to be any agreement Without him bringing uh, to it, there's no point in actually striking any sort of uh, deal if you didn't have the 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 representative of of the the soldiers, if you like, if, of the the fighters. So um, so Collins, he had various hats to where and he sat on so many of the subcommittees but apart from any of that I mean he really was a um, he seemed to actually get on with some of the uh, British negated theater. So he didn't really like Lloyd George or, or Churchill but he did get on with Effie Smith and Lord Birkenhead who was the Lord Chancellor um, and, th- and they got on famously. <laughs> so, um, it, it,
1: they're almost two opposites aren't they Birkenhead being of Ulster stock I think.
0: Yeah, from from Liverpool was sort of the Liverpool area, uh, and right,
1: oh right, so I live okay, not not yeah. not of us. So you can tell and, me. I'm well, well, Andrew Burnell
0: Law, Andrew Burnell Law was really of Ulster. Yeah, stock. Um, but uh, was he quite influential
1: for with? He Ulster?
0: was. Because he was Carson's galloper, right? So. um he sort of inspected the troops for, the, for, um, for Carson in, in Ulster. Um, so he was seen as being a real hardliner. And um, I guess this was Lloyd George's uh, great sort of tactical um, innovation in the sense that he gathered around him um, those that he thought were conspiring against him, but also prominent hardliners, Ulster uh, loyalists like Effie um, Smith. Or Lord Birkenhead. I think I think what you have to recognise is that before you know this is how far this cohort had moved I mean not all of them obviously um, but they had uh, moved sig- significantly in terms of being absolutely resistant to home rule to now saying okay well we're actually going to negotiate with the Irish as representatives of a Irish nation because that's what they said that they were, um, although their, their credentials were never actually accepted, but you know, it was all um a bit of a fudge. Um and and they they were prepared to to give Ireland Dominion status, the 26 counties. They were prepared to give the 26 counties dominion status. This sea change in the outlook of um the Conservatives, um, uh, which was really tested as well through the treaty negotiations. So Um, First we had Lloyd George getting his cabinet together and making sure that they were all, they had thrashed out, you know, from May to June, July, they'd put together the July uh, proposals which said to the Irish, right, we want crown, we want you to accept the crown, we want you to accept the empire and we want um, defence assurances like, you know, the, the the navy ports, and then we don't want to coerce Ulster, right? And and these are the these are the core of our demands along with, you know, a whole lot of other sort of um minor demands that they actually ended up negotiating upon, like financial autonomy, for example. So um the, what Lloyd George did is he got his cabinet to agree to this and they thrashed that out and then during the treaty talks one of the great big tests of as to whether the Conservative Party were on board for this um, substantial change in their Irish policy and they had that test in Parliament at the end of October um, when Lloyd George forced it into a, a, a vote of confidence uh, situation and he won. He, you know, he won a, a thumping majority. Then clearly signalling that the whole of the the Parliamentary Party at least were on board with Dominion status and for the terms, or at least exploring, you know, uh, these peace terms for for the Irish, for the 26 counties. And then the second major test was when the Conservative Conference uh, Party took place in November and the grass, you know, there was a lot of concern that the Conservative grassroots were really not going to accept any of this. And so um, there was a lot of effort expended to uh, make sure that the Conservative Party Conference, it wasn't called that then, but uh, Conservative Unionist uh, Association, that that a lot of effort went into making sure that the grassroots would support the continuation of the negotiations with Sinn Féin, because of course, don't forget, everyone had looked at them as being, you know, these are um, insurgents, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be negotiating. there was a degree of um, opinion within the um, conservative uh, organisation and party were completely and emphatically against uh, any negotiations with uh, Sinn Fein because they were that uh, they wanted them to accept the Crown and the Empire first. We shouldn't be going into these, you know, non-conditional um, negotiations. And also, um, the likes of Leo Amery, for example, would say, well, we should have negotiated with them from a, a position of strength. We shouldn't be sort of saying, oh, we're at a truce, we're at a standstill, no one's. No one's really uh, secured a victory. And yet here we are going into negotiations with essentially what they would have regarded as Irish rebels.
1: It's interesting that when they do thrash this all about beforehand and ultimately, I guess the splits that emerge, I guess they were always there, but they were uncovered even more so during the negotiations amongst the Irish contingent.
0: Well, because they hadn't really established their bottom line, and they, mm. you know, I think I said in this book, they don't, they didn't know what success looked like, um, and there had been a reason, you know, for that because they, um, I guess, you know, there is an argument. Well, it, it was a strategic decision not to thrash out uh, exactly what independence what independence and freedom meant, what, what were they prepared to fight for and what weren't they prepared to fight for? Because wouldn't that, of course, have, one, given away what they were looking for, their bargaining chips to, um, to the British and two, would have potentially collapsed that that very fragile um, unity of, of the, the separatist movement. So, you know, de Valerio's paramount concern all the time is to try and keep this movement t- t- together um, and I mean, I don't know whether you want to uh, talk about I mean, the the great debate in um, Ireland has always been why didn't uh, de Valera join the delegation? Because there he was the most experienced out of all of the Irish revolutionary leaders. Plus, he had also met Lloyd George um, and they were effectively, as one of the uh, Doyle Aaron cabinet members said, Effectively, they're leaving their best player at home, and they're, you know, they're off into the lion's den, if you like, in Ten Downing Street, facing a formidable uh, flanks of of negotiators uh, who had decades of parliamentary experience, and then topped by Lloyd George, who was just one of the um, preeminent negotiators of his time. So I, you know, like it, it's. Uh, he, it was so such a, a difficult um, task in any case, and why would they want to handicap themselves further by leaving such, you know, a a, uh, a forceful uh, negotiator himself as, as De Valera behind? I mean, you know, his, his justification for it was that well, I'm going to preserve because it was
1: ultimately his decision, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, well, if he wanted to go to the London, he, he would have.
0: Yeah, then the cabinet was split as to whether he should go, and he and his and his vote was the casting vote, um, and and he said, yeah, like I'm I'm going to I'm going to be the uh, symbol of the republic, the uncontaminated symbol of the the, the republic, uh, and so the idea would be, okay, that um, you know, did he deliberately uh, ex- did he deliberately undermine the negotiations, and did he want them to fail so that then he could uh, impose his own solution and that could have you know inevitably you know, this is the way m- many people think about it that you know because there's an awful lot of um an awful lot of concentration on the collins and de valera dynamic um collins was obviously de valera's closest challenger um and this is because de valera had been away in america for a lot of the um war of independence so uh you know collins is profile and uh, had had shut up while de Valera was away and he was the one prosecuting the, the war effort. It's hard not to assume that de Valera had underhand, he, that he was underhand about the whole thing. He never really spelt out what his intentions were and um, he was one of the most frustrating characters to to deal with in the book and I would read and pour over his words and try and actually work out what on earth he meant and he would send over these convoluted uh, statements to uh, the the delegates in London um, saying perhaps I'll come over but I probably won't come over. He relied on obfuscation all the time and um, the difficulty was though that he had hardliners at home so he was trying to keep them um, appeased and in London, he'd sent the moderates effectively, you know, the, the delegation was dominated by moderates. Um, and yeah, it's hard not to, to wonder what his ulterior motive was, um, because it seemed to be that he set up his Irish delegation for, he intended it to be paralyzed almost, um, because against um, Collins and Griffith, uh, and Duggan, well, Eamon Duggan, the lawyer, he was kind of, his seen as almost like a cipher for Collins. Um, but against him were Robert Barton, Erskine Childers, who was absolutely loathed by the British, um, and
1: she. Because sort of, he was British, wasn't he?
0: He was. Yeah. Well, he was born in Mayfair. <laughs> but he came from an Anglo-Irish uh, background, so um, the lower. Yeah, Irish
1: I'm, I'm, uh, public school educated.
0: Yeah, Hailbury. He went to the same yes. school as Lionel Curtis, and he went from almost like a, a, a conservative view of Ireland, thinking, you know, almost to the extent that. He was at the Tory spectrum, and then he went completely to the other side and became evangelical Republican. Um, And uh, the same can be said... Fervor
1: of the convert, isn't it?
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, And, well, the British absolutely loathed him, and and that was why they tried to... uh, Lloyd George um, made sure that, uh, I think, by after the 7th, so they had seven plenary sessions in the the treaty talks um, and they absolutely got nowhere, which was, you know, de Valera's strategy working to a degree. Um,
1: But then does that mean he didn't take the British threat seriously, that they would want war if the talks
0: collapsed? This is and this is the interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, we'll never know to what degree he what he was really thinking during that period. Um, But What we can say is that before the treaty negotiations began, de Valera was very much uh, pushing the moderate line. There were these unending exchanges between Lloyd George and uh, public exchanges of letters between Lloyd George and Eamon de Valera before the treaty negotiations began, just trying to establish the parameters, the talks about the talks, if you like, and um, Eamon de Valera really very rarely referred to the use or use the word republic and in the Doyle he was trying to you know um, adjust expectations. Then when the talks got underway he became just he seemed to want to interfere all the time um, even though he had made them plenipotentiaries. The other um, problem was that by the end of the treaty talks, he was really gung-ho, sort of trying to rouse the population up back to um, the idea of military conflict and we have to fight for our freedom and all the rest. And and the tenor of his rhetoric was really, it's extremely belligerent. So he was sort of, you know, rousing everyone to war at, at the very final, uh, during the final days of the treaty talks when everything was uh, on the precipice and he has always been uh, accused, you know, he was attacked for that, you know, why did you rush back to the Rock of the Republic um, after um, you sent the others off to London? And and I just wanted as well, well to say in terms of that the instructions that the Irish delegates had, they were very confused, they were um, completely contradictory, so um, they'd been given instructions by the door but then separate instructions by the cabinet, private instructions by the cabinet, secret instructions that they were not to make any um, agreement or make any um, substantial decision without referring back to the cabinet, you know. So it was all uh, extremely difficult, and um, this was surely not the way to, um, to to make sure that negotiations were going to be successful. It seemed to sort of damn them from the outset, didn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, agreement it is reached. It is reached with the delegates and the uh, the British, and the, but really the key elements that become problematic a dominion status and ulster the status of ulster and the boundary commission yes is, we have is, 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 yeah. yeah which i know we could spend hours talking about the boundary commission <laughs> <I know>. which <laughs> it was
0: a very smart negotiating move by Lloyd george so andrew Bonalore um, was actually uh, when he returned the one serious threat to to Lloyd George as logical replacement to Lloyd George because the Conservative Party were a little bit tentative about uh, going out on their own uh, even though they had won you know as um, the, the khaki election or the, the coupon election um, and they were the dominant force in the coalition and there was sort of a, a level or a degree of tentativeness about would they be able to uh, you know achieve a sweeping victory and, and not have to rely on um, Lloyd George's liberals and and he was a very charismatic figure um, and, and he did have still a wide popularity even though that was on the wane obviously by the time of the, the treaty talks um, so, and, and here is Andrew Bernalor comes back as a um, a, a potential leader. You know, So if Lloyd George felt the Conservatives knew that they had Andrew Law, and he was the one that really, he, he appealed to all sections of, of the party. He laid down a marker because effectively what Lloyd George was trying to do was trying to force Ulster's unionists into this all-island parliament, right? So they would have a home rule, so effectively they would have home rule under Dublin. Lloyd George had already committed to not, to, not coercing um, Ulster but he was trying to, to put pressure on them and to say mm. this is how they wanted to go. Andrew Bernalor came in and said absolutely not you know I've, there will be no uh, coercion of Ulster, there will be no deviation from what we have in the Government of Ireland Act and which is effectively what James Craig, who was the leader of Ulster Genius, had said in the summer, he said, tell Lloyd George I'm going to sit on Ulster like a rock, and he had said that to uh, one of the uh, Irish civil servants from Dublin Castle, one of the, the British civil servants from Dublin Castle. So um, when Andrew Bernalore threw down the gauntlet in this way, you know, saying thus far and no further to Lloyd George, like stop your uh, attempts to try and Force Craig into and his cabinet into a certain position, then uh, Lloyd George knew categorically that he had to have, you know, he had to follow a different strategy. But already, he had already been, it, it was uh, quite clear that this was something like this was going to happen. So, I mean, someone of uh, Lloyd George's creativity was never just going to be stumped mm-hmm. by that. So um, he'd already um, tried to persuade um, and, and sound out. Griffith and Collins as to whether they would actually accept a boundary commission. And so what happened was that Griffith said, um, "Yes, well, I will. Ex- I won't stand in your way," um, and effectively saying, "You know, I, I won't uh, collapse the talks over you, know, you pushing this policy." And key to this, and Collins was very unhappy about it initially, but key to to um, softening up the Sinn Féin, if you like, uh, towards this this policy. Tom Jones was absolutely vital in, in, in and he was the deputy secretary to the cabinet, he was a confidant of Lloyd George, he was also a fellow Welshman. Tom Jones won the, re- the confidence, they trusted him to a degree because he, he was, was a bit
1: of a straight shooter wasn't he?
0: Straight shooter, yeah and what is remarkable is that he was going in and out of um, the, the, the Irish camp there was no comparable figure going in and out of the British camp. But Lloyd George was distrusted by Sinn Fein. You know, no one trusted Lloyd George. Um, and uh, but by having Tom Jones, that the there was this sense of understanding, and Tom Jones could talk their talk. And effectively, what happened was that they had this meeting on the uh, the meeting on the 12th of November, and then Griffith that he didn't read it, but he signed a statement saying that he effectively, you know, agreed not to stand in their way over the Boundary Commission. He didn't tell anyone else about this, uh, except he did tell de Valera that um, he had had this discussion. He didn't feel that he needed to to, to, um, disclose any further. Um, He didn't think it was of any note. Um, And uh, what this did, the Boundary Commission effectively, uh, they, uh, Collins and Griffith, I don't think they would have signed the treaty if they had thought that the Boundary Commission and, and the intense discussions over this Boundary Commission really uh, carried on right up until the very, the final hours of the treaty. Collins clearly was won one over, I think, by that final meeting, but there was this idea that the Boundary Commission would, and the way that Lloyd George sort of um, fed this idea, he presented the Boundary Commission as something that the Irish could themselves conceive of as the way to achieving central unity so he allowed them to think that but uh, he didn't really spell it out and of course the Irish really fell down and not demanding greater detail um, and that was you know, Lloyd George's great strength that he could sort of promise the, this uh, idea that they were going to achieve their aim, they were going to be able to get essential unity and effectively that the the Protestants uh, Ulster's Protestants would be confined to a tiny little area in um, the northeast, and that ultimately that that would not be economically sustainable, and they would wither away, and then they would ultimately join an all Ireland. Okay, but it didn't come to pass because obviously um, economic and geographic sort of uh, considerations. Uh, you know, like we won't we'll get too much into the the, the Boundary Commission, but. You know, it was the, the great flaw re- really was that the Irish didn't um, determine, they didn't um, ask the detailed question that they should have. And in the treaty debates, after the treaty was signed, nobody really seemed to care about it because they thought, oh, you know, that that's a boundary commission, uh, that's the essential unity element. Uh, taking yes, it's barely on. mentioned, isn't it? Me. Mentioned. Their major concern in the treaty debates were, you know, they were very, uh, almost a sort of uh, messianic sort of concern about the the oath and the oath was so important to both the, the British and uh, the Irish. Oath to the king. Yeah. Well, let's remember it. it's, a, it's a, an oath of fidelity first to the constitution and then to uh, of uh, oath loyalty to the king. So or to the monarch. So so it, it really exposed um, how Sinn Fein thought of uh, they they never really had a coherent policy for the north they always their whole approach throughout the negotiations was the you know, if the english would just get out of the way we could solve these problems ourselves and you know really they uh, assumed that once you know, ulster's protestants if they could just sort of get over their pig-headedness um that they would basically wake up to the enlightened self-interest of an all-island you know that they could be part of uh, that the independent irish nation um and and well, they, there's
1: always an assumption that sorry to interrupt there's no acknowledgement of of what what it means to be a unionist i mean the clue is being in the name in the, in that they didn't yeah. want to be separate from no
0: the and law. that and that's uh, andrew Bernard law uh, always sort of said that um you know in in fact i think it's the the home rule debates that um the third home rule debate that uh, <laughs> ireland, <laughs> ireland is not a nation it's two nations and and um so you know you there was always a, a, a very much an a ingrained sense that the protestants of Ulster um but, and this was sort of the unspoken element of the, the first and, and second um, Home Rule Acts. And then it came out, you know, really in the third Home Rule, when, when, of course, you know, the whole parliamentary system was uh, not being able to handle it, that actually they wanted self-determination as well. You know, they felt that their uh, identity was completely overrun um, by the idea of being part of a, a, a predominantly Catholic Ireland. Yeah, and that, and that's what we have today. I mean, that's the same issue that we have today, right? So um, the the Unionist, Unionist community feels very much that like their identity is inexorably aligned with the British. They don't. That is fundamental to to who they are. In a way, it's, it's we have we we never seem to be able to escape this essential conundrum. This uh, it's a very difficult
1: yeah. one to resolve, yeah. I, I absolutely I, and uh, certainly won't solve that I- in the next five minutes. But <laughs> the I, I always feel like the the Irish Civil War, which essentially resulted from uh, the, the treaty, those in favor of the treaty and those against it,
0: mm.
1: it seems to me, given what happened only. A generation later in the 1930s, I forget the exact year, I should know this, when Ireland declared itself a republic, essentially. And in 1949, then was fully, fully republic. It seems such a waste to have of lives, to have a, a civil war, when if a treaty had been accepted by all sides, an independent Ireland was inevitable it, or they, is that because I'm looking back and I know that that's what happened And obviously they didn't know that at the time
0: well they didn't know that at the time and um I think you can it, it's very hard to to tell a community with you know, especially when you think about the savagery of the war of independence people had died for this cause and um to just simply turn around and say oh well actually it turns out that what we were fighting for uh, was a um, so the the right to be part of the British Empire? You know, I mean that just didn't wash with uh, with a large number of of um, people within the separatist movement. There was no expectation at that time. I mean, not even the British expected. They didn't want the British didn't want the Irish to to not be part of the empire. I mean, at the after the. Uh, first world war um they w- were very keen on keeping the empire together because this was the basis of their superpower um status and um they had been they had won the the first world war and their effort in the first world war was so defined by the fact that um you know the, the empire had uh, that had all the empire had come together in a way if you like um and you know, that they had no interest whatsoever in uh, imagining that Ireland would become a republic. And, and in fact, that's what they tried to, to fight against. And, and it took really, you know, as you know, that um, I'm sure much better than I do. I mean, it was really it all began to fall apart after the Second World War. But certainly after the First World War, there was no willingness at all. I mean, the, the, the idea of the empire, the unity of the empire, um the majority of British people thought that that was a good thing um, and liberals and conservatives wanted Ireland to be a dominion. Dominion governments wanted Ireland to be a dominion. The Americans <laughs> wanted Ireland to be a dominion. So, you know, um, and, and yes, you look back and think, oh, well, did it need all of that violence, did it need all of that bloodletting? It's uh, yeah, it, it and, and certainly the Civil War is seen as that. It's seen as almost a descent into madness, um, and and it really um, it, it hardened British attitudes against the Irish again, um, and it also um, bewildered uh, you know, their, their supporters across the Empire, across the Commonwealth as well. Um, so. Uh, it, it, what they had the worst of stars didn't they the irish uh free state having said that they were an incredibly cohesive and strong democracy if you think about what had happened to ireland Throughout that revolutionary period, from the Easter Rising, the War of Independence, and you know, then the Civil War, during that interwar period, many uh, demo- many new democracies collapsed. They didn't survive. Uh, Ireland did. And of course, as I say this, I'm always thinking, oh yes, but there's so many people that my God, you know, they they, they gave up. That they they shouldn't have um, conceded to the British. They should have. They should have kept going.
1: <laughs> Life is a compromise. I always think, but then that's um, that's just me.
0: I know a lot of historians would say to a room of students, "Would you have signed the treaty if you know you were in this situation?" Would you, and always a majority of people say, "Yes, I would have signed the treaty." Um, but
1: that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, because they know what comes afterwards, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so but they
1: did. I mean, the Doyle did sign the treaty, and, well, they, and yeah, the Doyle, civil war still happened.
0: Margin, yeah, only by a narrow margin, and then um, precipitated a, a civil war. But that civil war, you know, with the the conflicts were inherent within the movement. You could argue, and um, and and it seems right to argue that that um, to to what extent was there ever after the the war of independence was there ever going to be a a way of um, persuading the majority of the separatist movement, the, uh, the volunteers and, you know, the Sinn Féin politicians, how were you going to get both the militarists, the um, militarists and the sort of more moderates to, to agree to this? It, it's, you know, it, it's a very difficult thing to do and um, to actually say let's compromise after you've had you've suffered all these casualties you've suffered all this all this death Collins was right the treaty gave the irish the freedom to achieve freedom
1: yes a very good way to end it i think gretchen but <laughs> i know that we probably could have spoken for another hour and 20 minutes or so could speak about this for a very very long time
0: it's a it's a very difficult topic to talk about to be honest because it's so current so yeah it's just a really it's a fiendishly complex and and very sensitive topic and uh, you know as an Australian I just kind of trample on in
1: (laughs) yeah well no I think yeah You've done a great job. I really, I've really, really enjoyed reading it. I've taken up enough of your time, Gretchen. Yeah. Um, I would love to be able to get you back on to talk more about Irish history. It's been really interesting.
0: OK. Oh, no. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this Um, and I hope that, um, you know, I hope I got across some points well and, you know, yeah. You
1: did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is a complex subject and, Uh, I'll put some links in the show notes for our listeners so that they can find out more if they want to. Um, I listen to a very good podcast series with Michael Laffan that's available through. Yeah, he's great. He's got a very good sense of humour. Big, big fan of his. Oh,
0: well, he's a professor at UCD. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And um, so I'll put some links in there for that. That covers the whole of the Irish Revolution from uh, Home Rule in the late 19th century, all the way up until, um, uh, the civil war. Uh, but Gretchen, your book, the treaty, the gripping story, of the negotiations that brought about the Anglo Irish treaty, but well, that's not the full subhead st- subtitle, the gripping story of negotiations that brought about Irish independence and led to the civil war, uh, the treaty, um, uh, fantastic book. I recommend it. It's it's what's great about it is that it's, it covers the whole treaty negotiations, but, also important facets of the revolution in only 250 pages so very well done
0: <laughs> thanks oliver
1: well there was certainly a lot there but it really is worth reading into more you can find links in the show notes if you have any questions or feedback you can get me on the twitter or email us at history at i'll leave you now thank you and good night